We'll open your Bibles for the final time to the final chapter of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28. We'll begin our reading in just a moment in verse 11. We're going to read to the end of the chapter. I've been corrected twice, so you do realize how rare it is for me to make any type of mistake. I'm rarely mistaken. I might occasionally misspeak, but I think I originally said we started this series in 20 or 21, and then I was told it was 20, and then this week I was told, no, actually, uh, it was late in the year 2019. So, or, oh, it was February of 2019. Okay, all righty, I stand corrected for, what, the fourth time, I guess. <laughs> and so, um, just very interesting. Uh, we began in the Gospel of Luke and uh, covered... Uh, the 24 chapters of Luke, now the 28 chapters of Acts, uh, 52 total chapters over the course of a little over four years with the other sermon series mixed in. And as long as you might think that is, I felt like uh, we were moving at warp speed. There were most of the sermons uh, covered a chapter. Uh, and, and at times even more uh, than a chapter to try to, try to understand the larger narrative that was being uh, explained. And I, I must tell you, much like uh, at the end of a vacation or the end of a baseball or football season or the end of the Christmas season, I experience a, a little bit of uh, melancholy because what? Time is moving forward. Uh, uh, your Google search assignment for today is uh, we may never pass this way again. And there's too many places I've got to see in that it's very unlikely uh, that we will preach through uh, the book of Acts and the book of Luke again in, in my lifetime. And that's, that's kind of a sobering thing. Uh, probably just will not happen. Uh, there's too many other texts uh, that we need to examine uh, in the Word of God. And so again, today we will pick up in verse 11 of that final chapter of Acts chapter 28, we shall read through the end of the book. Luke will close his inspired history of the early church having demonstrated a number of important realities accomplished by those first Christians. One of these things would be that the gospel has gone and is going from Jerusalem to Judea into Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. And that Christ is with his people as they fulfill that great commission. He has proven that the Holy Spirit did, and I believe he still does, call, convert, gift, empower and equip the church to continue to spread the same gospel that that early church proclaimed. He has proven that the gospel and its messengers will face opposition, sometimes violent opposition, and, and that the, the messenger may be hindered. He may be killed. But I believe really maybe the, the central theme of the book of Acts is that while God's messengers may be hindered, they may be fettered, they may be in shackles, but the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is always unhindered. It is always unshackled. And so we will see today that the people of Israel, the, the Jews, the, the, the Hebrews, because of their stubborn and persistent rejection of God's message and His messengers, a rejection that began with the prophets of the Old Testament and continues through the apostles and their followers, has been rejected by God for the purpose of the inclusion, that would be most of us, 
for the purpose of the inclusion of the Gentile world into the people of God. The rejection is temporary and will persist until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. In that way, according to that plan and according to to God's predestined purpose, all of Israel will be saved. And I understand that's a bit of an enigmatic statement. We will understand one day exactly what Paul meant by what he said. Now, there's no indication that Luke planned a third volume. But he sure leaves us with a cliffhanger, doesn't he? That the Apostle Paul uh, is in prison. He is uh, awaiting trial. But yet again, that reminder... Paul may be in chains, but the gospel is not. The, so it, it is, the, is the book of Acts a, a story of the frustration and defeat of the gospel and of the church of Jesus Christ? I don't think so. I think it's a story of the, the victory, of the, the certainty of the victory of God and his people and his work and his word. Yeah, the, the leading spokesperson, the, the, the greatest theologian the church has ever known, the, the, the great missionary and preacher and pastor, he is in prison. But again, I believe the gospel was then, and it still is, 2,000 years later. And it will be until the day of Christ's return. It will be the message of the triumph of God and his people. So let's read, beginning in verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead, putting in at Syracuse. We stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium, And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leader of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans." When they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. They said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him and at his lodging in great greater numbers. Uh, From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have been closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen." 
He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the sufficiency of your word to accomplish your purpose. I pray that we indeed would be found faithful to that which you have given uh, to us, God, that you would work in and among and through us to accomplish your great work in this world of taking the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and people. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have stated on a number of occasions and kind of in a number of ways that Paul indeed was God's man. He, he was obedient to God. He was surrendered to the very lordship of Jesus Christ. And he was on God's mission. He was fulfilling God's purpose. He was certainly under God's protection, but yet he had to endure. He had to persevere through God's storms. And we can't help but say a, a, a word again, and it kind of, you know, our, the, our, our church slogan kind of sums it up. Some days you're just lucky, right? Isn't that what we say? No. There is a reality to the undergirding and the overarching sovereignty of God. It's called the providence of God. And there are days when indeed life is filled with what we might call favorable or smiling providences. That, 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 that you go into the week thinking, I've got every shade of t-shirt that says, life is good. And I'm going to wear it. Because everything is going my way. Again, those three categories. All my relationships are great. My finances are great. The health, my health and the health of everybody I love is just great. And here's a danger. And it's kind of a, a backside of the theology that I hate so much, this modern health and wealth, word of faith theology. Listen, I hope you have a favorable providence. I truly do. That, that, I, I would desire that for you as kind of a normative thing. But just because things are going well does not necessarily mean God's pleased with you. Okay? That, that don't make the mistake, hey, everything's good, and therefore God must be just exuberantly pleased with me. In fact, those very things that we think of as blessings and favor, maybe something God is doing to your life to leave you in your blindness, in your obstinance, in, in your neglect of the things of God. And, of course, the flip side is true. And so many times, at least it seems to me, we do find ourselves in the midst of, if, if not just a, a moment, but many times, those moments turn into seasons, don't they? Seasons of unfavorable or unsmiling providences in our life. If you're a child of God, never interpret that, that God has abandoned, nor has he forsaken me. Because he is always our good shepherd. And he is always the one that never leaves nor ever forsakes. And we can take hope that there's nothing in the way of randomness or accidents, that he is taking these difficulties and he is weaving them into our lives in such a way that he is going to be glorified and his people are going to be put on display and, and reveal something of his glory. And he's going to refine us and conform us to the character of our Savior through this time of adversity. 
And so remember that. The, the early church, inclusive of the Apostle Paul, they were challenged. They faced opposition. They faced difficult. We talked about those two categories of moral evil and natural evil. And God's people still suffer the realities of both. And so let's look, let's begin, let's go back to verse uh, 11. And some things just catch my eye, and they just tickle me. I, I can't help it. I just kind of chuckle when I see them. But if you look at verse 14, kind of the, the heading of, of point one, and so we came to Rome. Now, if I'd been in the company of Luke and he said, well, here, here's what I'm going to write. I go, Luke, my gosh, we've been trying to get here for six months. We've been shipwrecked. We've been through storms. We, we have been opposed. We, we, I thought we were going to die. And all you got to say is, hey, we made it. That's all you're going to say about it? And, and, and as we've seen so many times, Luke, if nothing else, he is the master of understatement, okay? And so they do. Uh, they arrive at Rome. In fact, in verse 16, he says it twice. I don't know if he means that, hey, we, we made it to Italy, and Italy was at that time probably was largely known as Rome, part of the empire of the Roman Empire, or and then later having arrived at the city proper. But he does begin in verse 11, and then once again, those details that, that really fascinate us, probably while on Malta, uh, having to wait out uh, to begin the, the time of uh, the ship, the seas were safe enough for uh, ships to, to sail. Uh, they uh, were there, and there was also probably a ship from Alexandria that was hauling grain, and so they got passage on that ship. And he gives us details about uh, uh, that particular sh uh, ship. Uh, the had the twin gods, uh, gods uh, from uh, Greek and Roman uh, mythology. We're told they're Castor and Pollux, and their their sign in the heavens was the constellation. Gemini. And so uh, being able to see the constellation Gemini, probably if you're a sailor, was something that they would have thought, it's time to go. If the skies are clear, we need to be prepared uh, to sail. But he gives us these details uh, about this ship, and so they embark on the journey, and they travel, first of all, to Sicily, uh, to the port of uh, Syracuse, about a 60-mile journey, and then they head over uh, to the man mainland across the Strait of Messina, about 74 miles from Syracuse to Regium, and then they've still uh, got about 200 miles to travel uh, to uh, the, the city uh, there, uh, uh, Puteoli, and there they're going to uh, put in and Paul is going to be allowed uh, to spend some time, uh, spend some time uh, with some brothers there, and they're going to uh, encourage them. He's allowed to stay for seven days. We don't know exactly why they stopped there for uh, so long, uh, but they did, maybe to unload the ship or, or whatever it was, whatever business needed to uh, transact. Uh, but while there, evidently, verse 15, messengers went on ahead to Rome, and maybe told the church at Rome, the Apostle Paul is going to be arriving in a few days. And notice there in verse 15, we're told that these brothers from Rome made the journey, came back towards them, and we're Two places are identified at the Forum of Apius and uh, three taverns. You, you can interpret that as rest stops. Uh, on the Appian Way, on the journey from uh, that port city there uh, to Rome. So they, they came out. But it, but it struck me, and, and I don't, this may be reading a, a bit too much into it, but there is a term used in the ancient world that comes forward uh, into our, our New Testament. The, the term is parousia. And, and it's used to describe the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, the parousia, the day of his uh, return. But it was also used to describe the approach to a city by a visiting dignitary, such as a king, okay? And here was the protocol 
for the approaching dignitary. That somebody from the city came out in the roadway to greet them and to welcome them to their fair city. And I think that's maybe what's going on here. There's much more I could say about it, but the theology of the return of Christ associated with this concept. But I believe this was an official welcoming party from the church there at Rome, that they were so excited that this one who had preached so boldly and suffered so greatly was finally going to arrive. He had written them this great letter that we know of as the book of Romans, and they were excited, and they thought it is an appropriate thing. He is worthy of our respect. Let's go out and meet him. I thought that was interesting. Okay. All right. We'll see how far that got. But at any rate, they come out. And they meet the Apostle Paul. And so, again, verse 16, we're told, and we came to Rome. And we're told, and this so impresses me about the centurion Julius. Julius has treated him so well over the course of this six months, and Paul was able to stay on his own, and a soldier guarded him. Now, verse 17, we look at Paul and his desire to bear witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to his Jewish kinsmen, to the, to the Jews uh, there in Rome. And so uh, probably after recuperating, resting, you know, a, a six-month journey, particularly one as intense as this one, would just absolutely wipe you out, would it not? Now, sometimes I talk to you young mothers, and you can identify with this. Six minutes in the car with your children exhausts you. Am I right? Can I get an amen? And so you can imagine that what a six-month journey uh, would do to Paul. And so they, evidently they rested, and he calls uh, these Jewish leaders first. If Remember, in uh, the book of Romans, he's already written it, okay, at this time. Uh, the Romans have it, okay? And his principle is that the gospel goes to where? the Jew first. So what's his first appointment? Jews, I want to speak with you. I want to explain to you all of the uh, machinations as to why we're at this particular place at this particular time. Now, once again, I, I get a chuckle sometimes out of things. Look there at verse 17. He begins... And again, brothers does not mean he thinks of them as, you know, we're all uh, uh, citizens in good standing of the kingdom of God, okay? It's just, it's just a colloquial way of referring to his fellow Jewish kinsmen, not that they are uh, one in Christ. But he says, and I would have loved to have been sitting there so I could have said something cynical and sarcastic about this, okay? Although I had done nothing against our people, etc., my goodness, Paul, you nuked every synagogue from Jerusalem to Corinth. Every rabbi in the Mediterranean basin wants to kill you. What are you thinking? You've done nothing. My gosh! Everywhere you go, it's either a revival or it's a riot. Sometimes both at the same time. I've done nothing. Now, what is he saying? He is expressing his deeply held conviction that Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of everything that the Jews had anticipated under the Old Covenant. Everything that had been said, everything that had been predicted, everything that had been promised, everything that had been rightfully practiced was pointing forward to the person and to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, that, that the biblical and logical outworking of the old covenant was the new covenant fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and he believed that and he wanted to communicate that. And one of the challenges that we face in doing evangelism or even, even talking among ourselves about theological issues of which there may be some, some disagreement, okay, is do we begin at the point of our agreement or do we begin at the point of our disagreement? And, and what you always have to do is be discerning in regards to where you need to begin 
with any particular individual in any particular context. On, on our, 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 our recent trip, we had encounters with a lot of, lot of different people. And on one of our final days, we ate lunch in the train uh, coming back from uh, Denali to Anchorage with a couple that we really hadn't interacted with, but we would see them as, you know, all riding on the same bus and all that. And very nice, very, very mannerly couple, probably approximately our age. And uh, they weren't on walkers or anything like that. You know, we're, you know, we're not quite that age yet. And so um, we began to talk to them, and I'm, I'm beginning to try to explore and probe a little bit. And um, they very quickly volunteered. Well, we graduated from Cal Berkeley. We live in California. And, you know, we're, we're card-carrying uh, liberals. As uh, another, another Google search, as Jake uh, Brigance told Rourke, uh, they were indeed uh, card-carrying ACLU radicals, okay? That, that, that's what they, they would describe. I mean, we're down with everything. We're, we're to the left of whoopee. But I began to, to talk to them. And you know what? I found, a, I found a little spot that I began to probe a little bit. I got to kind of bounce back and forth off of them later in the day. They live just north of San Francisco. I guess they're waiting on the Labor Day weekend crowd. I don't know. Come on. And you know what? They were sick and tired of the hogwash that was so characteristic of California. Of the crime, of the violence, of the complete nonsense that was going on in every public forum. And so that's well and good. Well, what's wrong with all of that? Why is that not the right state of affairs? Why is this nonsense not the best possible situation? Is it just your opinion? Or is there some kind of objective standard we might appeal to that would say something to the reality that if somebody throws a brick through somebody's store window and walks out and starts carrying their stuff out, that there's actually something wrong with it. Why is that wrong? Why is that not a virtue? And it's really not too far a trip from there. Now, I never got there with them. Okay? You know, again, we're just you know, traveling. But it's not too far a trip from there to there's only one remedy. There's only one remedy. His name is Jesus. It's the gospel. So, at any rate, do you begin, hey, we agree about this, or we disagree? Context, individuals will dictate that. But we always have to get to this. And you can interrelate this in a number of ways. But we have to press upon point. You must be born again. You must be born again. That... Now, that has to be explained. See, uh, somebody, uh, uh, one of my preacher friends said, I'm preaching Romans 4 Sunday. You know, Abraham believed God and was credited to righteousness. I said, you know what you've got you to explain this day and time? What faith or belief is. You've got you to tease that out as to what that actually is. And so you've got to tease out to everybody what it means to be born again and how it is we can come to be born again. And what is the result of being born again? Well, it is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and confessing His Lordship with His mouth, and it is being in a repentant state in regard to our sins. That is the testifying realities to the reality of being born again. So you have to get to those things. Now, to be sure, Paul had already written the book of Galatians. I've done nothing. I got, hey, there ain't no reason y'all be upset with me. Yeah, we, we, oh, listen, let's just, we can just hold hands, sing come, kumbaya, y'all, and walk off into the sunset. Now, he'd already written this, Galatians 2, 3. I had Titus with me, and he wasn't even compelled to be circumcised. There, there, there is no necessity to practicing circumcision. It has nothing to do with your acceptance before God. In fact, Galatians 2.15, we know that a person's not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. In order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. 
See, they, they believe kind of two interrelated things. We're children of Abraham. John the Baptist kind of punctured that, didn't he? You brood of vipers. Don't tell me you're children of Abraham. Don't come at me with that. God can take these stones and raise up children of Abraham. That's going to get you nowhere. Your, your nominal participation in the covenant, so to speak, your, your tip of the hat to these old covenant uh, 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 practices, it's going to get you absolutely nowhere. In fact, he wrote, for those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. In fact, there's now no more Jew or Greek. If you are in Christ, you're Abraham's offering. I've done nothing to upset y'all. We, no, I, I haven't said or done a thing you ought to upset about. Paul, really, everything you've said and done ought to upset these Jews. Here's the thing. There's a sense. Now, again, I'm not trying to upset you too much today. Maybe just a little bit, but not tremendously. Just to agitate you a small amount. But the unbelieving world, when it gets down to cases, when it gets down to reality and truth, they're going to be upset with us sometimes. Maybe all of the time. If the Spirit of God is not working to help them understand the truth of what you're saying, they're likely to be quite angry about the truth of the gospel. And so, again, neither circumcision or non-circumcision counts for anything. Oh, that was a big deal. Oh, I've done nothing. No, they're, 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 you shouldn't be upset with me in the least. I think that's a little soft peddling. Paul has decided what? I want you to see, before you get all upset and uptight about the things that we disagree upon, and these disagreements are essential to the gospel, I want you to understand the gospel I'm presenting, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, is actually the fulfillment of the things that you say you believe and practice. And so that's the track uh, that uh, he took. And he begins to explain to him there, in verse 18, how all of the things came to be. And we looked at that several uh, weeks ago. And uh, the Romans really didn't want to get in, involved. They, they, they saw, saw no reason to uh, persecute or, or prosecute the apostle uh, Paul. And yet, uh, these Jews objected. And so his legal strategy, and I believe it's really an evangelistic strategy as well, is I want to appeal to Caesar. And I want to make the case. And part of it is, I've already been told that's where I'm going. God has revealed that to me. I'm going there. I want to proclaim the gospel at the high, in the highest corridors of power. And I want those corridors to say, in essence, that these Christians and their gospel practice and their gospel proclamation are not a threat. They're not a political or a military or an economic threat to the interests of Rome. And so he was compelled, and he says there at the, in the end of verse 19, now they brought charges against me, and maybe in our language, they sued me, but I'm not countersuing. Okay, y'all heard that language before? So-and-so's gotten sued, now they're going to be countersued, you can kind of you know, duke it out in court. He says, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to counter." Uh, sue them. And so, for this reason, to explain the situation, how it is that I'm here in Rome, how it is I'm about to go up here uh, before Caesar, I'm going to uh, explain it to you. And here's the deal. Everything that you've hoped for and everything you've expected and everything the old covenant looked forward to has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am here because of that singular hope, the hope of Israel. Again, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they say something very interesting. There in verse 21, you see their response. We have received no letters from Judea about you. Nobody sent us a message. Uh, um, we haven't gotten an email. Nobody's sent us a, a letter. 
Uh, it might still be in the mail if it were mailed today or mailed then, you know, 2,000 years later. It may still be circulating around somewhere. But nobody has put it on Facebook. Nobody's put it on TikTok. Nobody, I mean, we just, we're oblivious to what's going on. Now, that's interesting. Maybe they were telling the truth. Possibly. We, we just haven't really heard that heard about you. We don't know enough to really form an opinion. My suspicion is this. We've already been down this road. About 10 years ago, the Emperor Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome because there was this big squabble that basically turned out to be a riot related to the gospel, the distinctives of the gospel as opposed to Judaism, okay? And Claudius had enough and said, no more. You Jews, which got the Christians, you're expelled from Rome. We don't want to get involved in that controversy. It's not our problem. It's not our problem. And so just you do your thing, and, and, and we're uh, going uh, to do uh, our thing. But yet, look at verse 22. Tell us about it. We, we desire to hear from you what your views are. Now, we, we are already kind of prejudiced against you because your sect is opposed, but, but we will hear you, okay? And so Paul is going to present his case to them, and he calls, verse 23, we're told that a larger gathering is going to come, uh, maybe more of the leadership, more of the membership, and, and he comes in, and we're told from Morning to evening, he expounded to them. Y'all think I preach long sermons. Now, now how would y'all like to have been there from morning to evening? Folks, that's not a sermon. That's at least, it may not be a quite a conference, but it's at least a clinic. Okay? I mean, that, that's, that's pretty long. But, but he was unpacking for them the entirety of the Old Covenant revelation. His, his reference point is the Law of Moses, the five books. First five books of the Bible, the law of Moses, okay? Explain and taking the prophets and saying, again, Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies and the promises to be found in that old covenant. And so he tells them about the kingdom of God, the realities of the redemption kingdom of God. Not the theocratic kingdom. Not, not, a, not an earthly kingdom. See, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Okay? It is a spiritual kingdom, and we enter that kingdom through the accomplishment of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary when we come to believe the gospel. You want to be a kingdom citizen, the kingdom that exists here and now, the kingdom that is under the lordship of Jesus Christ, you enter that kingdom through faith in its king, through surrender to the lordship of that king, okay? Through the person and work, through the accomplishment of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul gives them that great testimony related to the king and the kingdom. And some suppose, this, I don't have time to, to develop it fully, but think of this. Remember, he's written Galatians. We've talked about that. He's already written Romans by this time. And he might have followed something of the outline of the book of Romans in preaching the king and kingdom, the, the gospel of the kingdom. That, that this, what I'm telling you, is the gospel that's been promised before him through the prophets, first chapter of Romans, verses 1 through 6. And that this gospel, Romans 1, 16, is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And they probably got a lot of amens when he maybe went down the Romans 1, 18. Oh, goodness. The wrath of God is being revealed against the ungodliness of men who suppress the knowledge of truth in their 
unrighteousness. And they're going, yeah, preach it, Paul. Those nasty, dirty Gentiles, you get them. You go get them, Paul. And then he got to chapter 2. You Jews are worse. You're more guilty than the Gentiles. I mean, you've got the written law. You got all of this knowledge and all of these privileges and all these rituals and all of these things that pointed out the holiness of God. You're more guilty than the Gentiles. But God. What do we talk about? The great buts of the Bible, Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now. Oh, there's a righteousness from God. And the law and prophets have been talking about it for centuries. But this righteousness of God comes through. Uh-uh. Not circumcision, not descent from Abraham, not to practice of all the rituals and all the ceremonies, not even through the obedience of the law. This righteousness comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has, he has solved the problem in that he has propitiated. He has satisfied the wrath of God for you. We often talk about we're saved by grace through faith. We're going to be looking at that in a few, wor- a few weeks, not by works, lest any man should boast. But here's a flip for you. You are saved by works. You are saved by works. Thankfully, not your works. It's the work of the person of Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary on your behalf. You're saved by the works of the substitute. The one who, in his substitution, satisfied the wrath of God. That that these sacrifices, they simply cannot remove the stench, the guilt of your sin, and only one can do it. And his name is Jesus Christ. And tragically, yeah, you want to claim your identity in Abraham, but the tragedy is your identity is not in Abraham. Oh, his name starts with an A, all right. But it's not Abraham. Your identity is in Adam. And you need to have an identity in Christ because in Adam all sin and therefore all die, and in Christ all who believe in him shall live. All right? And then, and this is what he's going to get to, and this, boy, this is tough stuff. Maybe he starts sketching the edges of what he would explain in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Before the twins were born, before either one of them had done good or evil so that God's purpose and election might stand, he says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Wow. Begins to explain to him. This is how it works. Oh, God hasn't failed. And it's not as though the Word of God has failed. The Word of God is at work and it's sufficient and people are being saved. Some of you Jews are actually being saved, but most of you are under a judicial hardening, under a judicial stupor because you have rejected your Savior. You have rejected your gospel. And yet, that rejection is ultimately a part of God's plan. In some mysterious way, God is going to save the Gentiles through the proclamation of the gospel. And the Jews are going to be jealous of that in some way. And they're going to desire what God has given to those Gentiles. Think of it as a, as a parent. You know, sometimes in uh, correcting a child, and you say, well, go clean your room. And they don't go. And you go, okay, leave it. And, and, it, and it comes snack time. Oh, no, 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 no. You, no, uh, your, your brother can have a snack, but you can't. It, it, it comes playtime. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. Your, 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 your brother can go out and play, but now you just, you, you, you know, no, you, you were disobedient. And they look at the privilege that's being granted through obedience And they go, you know what? I'm so jealous of my brother, I think I'll go clean my room. I know that's silly, but there's something to that. The the Jews who understand a great deal about God, they look at the Gentiles and go, whoa, 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 whoa. They've taken our place in the kingdom. They're recipients of God's favor. 
And so, again, they are being hardened. And, and Paul tells them this. There, look at uh, verse 25. We're told that some of them believed him and, and, and so forth, and yet seems like probably the majority uh, disbelieved. There was disagreement, and they were debating, I'm, I'm sure. And, and notice what Paul says there in verse 25. The Holy Spirit was writing, saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. And we see that quote from Isaiah 6. That you're going to go preach, and you and your message are going to be rejected. That you're going to go, Isaiah, and you're going to preach the truth, but they are ultimately going to reject you. And this is quoted a number of times in the New Testament by Jesus and the apostles to illustrate the rebellion, the rebellious state of the entirety of the nation of Israel. doesn't mean every Jew rejected the gospel. The first Christians were Jews. But for the most part, they live in rejection and, and they have experienced a God-ordained spirit of hardness, of stupor, of eyes that cannot see the truth of the gospel, of ears that will not hear of the powerful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I, I mentioned this in our devotion on Friday. I have a friend that, that witnesses to a, another friend, a friend that I don't know, that makes the claim of being an atheist. And he's over long periods of time. Basically, you're, you're going to hear the gospel. You're going to hear the gospel, you know, tells him. And one day he, he told him, he said, you know, it just may be a reality that God has not given you the eyes to see this nor the ears to hear it. And, and he asked me, do you think that's the thing to tell people sometimes? I said, absolutely. See, most of us in America think, well, I'm going to live like I want to. I'm going to have a little fun, you know. I'm going to do my thing. And then when I want to, I'll pray the magic prayer. I'll walk down the golden aisles. I'll do this and I'll do that and God will save me. Or I'll save myself, probably. You know. Here's the thing, no, you won't. Oh, you may come down an aisle and you may pray some prayers. You may get spiritual or religion or hold. Let me tell you something. You'll be saved when God decides to save you. Yeah. When God so works in your heart to give you spiritual life where there presently exists spiritual death. How many times have we told you? I, listen, I've been to a lot of funerals. I ain't seen a corpse do a thing yet. They do nothing. And that's the analogy of the spiritual condition of the unregenerate. They do nothing. And what you better be praying in regards to is, God, would you give me ears, eyes? Would you give me a heart that beats, a heart of flesh? Would you give me just some grace so that I may see something of your glory and that you would make me alive to believe? It happened on his timetable, not yours. Okay. So, again, Paul pronounces the reality of this judgment upon the obstinate, the rebellious nation. And so, having concluded this time with them, this, this appropriate, this ordained, this, this designated time, I want, to, I want to explain myself to you Gentiles. I want to make my case. I want to present my gospel to you because I believe that's the biblical thing to do, to take the gospel to the Jew first. Again, verse 28, therefore, there's going to be millions, even billions of Gentiles saved. And you're going to sit on the sidelines and wonder what happened. You're left out. You're left out. And so the gospel is going to them because God has ordained what? That they will listen. And the final word from Luke, Paul lived there two years at his own expense. I don't know if he made tents or if the church there at Rome supported him, but whatever, uh, he was able to, to live in his own quarters. And people freely uh, came to him. And he was able to, 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 to speak and to preach and to proclaim the great uh, truth uh, of, of the gospel. 
And, and I often wonder, you know, he wrote Ephesians at this time. And so presumably there was a centurion, maybe even chained to him for two years. And I wonder when he got to Ephesians 6, started, put on the whole armor of God. Hmm. Helmet of salvation. Down to the feet, shod with the gospel. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But he certainly had enough interaction with the centurions to understand what, what kind of armor they wore, didn't he? So, he's there. He's in chains. Not a very favorable providence. A difficult providence. Nobody would want anybody that they care anything about to be in chains. He's in chains, and he understands that some people kind of try to be funny. I never try to be funny. He's God, jailbird for Jesus. He's in God's, he's God's prisoners. I'm God's. Whether I'm healthy, whether I'm wealthy, whether I'm happy, I'm God's. Even if I'm God's prisoner, I'm in God's prison. And I'm going to preach God's message. So he proclaims the kingdom, king and kingdom, teaching, instructing, explaining. He also writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon while he's there. Now, he got busy. Yes. He's in chains. But the word of God that Isaiah wrote long before that will not return void, it was unchained. It was unhindered. As it always has been, as it always will be. We have to take that gospel. We have to proclaim that gospel. And I believe we should be absolutely convinced. Yeah, we may face the hostility, friends, families, colleagues, co-workers, whoever they are. And we shouldn't go out of our way to aggravate them. I'm not saying that. So, but we should believe that that gospel of the kingdom, that message of the kingdom, of a, of a king who came and suffered and died to establish a kingdom, to save a kingdom, that that message is still a sufficient message to continue to grow that kingdom until the day that our king returns. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, for your truth, for the power of that truth. We thank you that we see all through the gospel account of Luke, all through the history of the church in Acts, we see the, the power of the truthful testimony regarding the work of your Son. And we see the power of your Holy Spirit inflaming hearts to go into the most difficult areas and proclaim the truth. And we see that truth transforming lives. Same truth, same Spirit, and you do the same thing. You transform the lives. You bring life out of that which is dead through the power of your Word. We pray that you would use us to accomplish that great purpose. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.